Uh, Good morning. Your reading today is James 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Thanks, Heather. I don't know where John went. He might need this, but... Bible up there. So how many of you have experienced conflict within the church? Sadly, I already know the answer. All of you. Therefore, the more significant question is this. Why does it happen? Why do these conflicts happen? Or maybe to say it a little bit differently, where do they come from? What causes them? If you've been in the church for any length of time, You've experienced conflict, but where does that come from? Let me frame that question a little bit more still. In Jesus, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have been forgiven and freed from our sin. We have a common commission to disciple the world and a common command to do so in Trinity-like unity. Our God-given love for one another is a significant way in which God has chosen to reveal the power of the gospel to the world. And on top of all of that, the Holy Spirit lives in us to make us holy. So given all those truths of the Christian faith, all those realities of what it means to be a Christian and within the church, a part of the church, given all of that, it doesn't make any sense that there would be conflict among us. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, as we all know, there is all too often and all too painfully, there is. So so let me come back to the second question I asked you. If conflicts within the church, hear, hear this, hear this, they are opposed to God's nature, God's plan, and God's commands, as well as the church's nature, mission, and power. If, if conflicts within the church are opposed to all those things, or against all of those things, where do they come from? And equally importantly, when they come, what do we do about them? How do we avoid them? How do we resolve them? And how do we heal from them afterwards? Tragically, this is not a new question, or these aren't, this isn't a new set of questions within the church. Evidently, James was dealing with this exact same stuff 2,000 years ago at the very beginning of the church. 
For he asked his readers the exact same question. What causes quarrels and fights among you? There's quarreling. There's fighting among the Christians that James pastored. And for all the reasons I just listed about who they really were and what God really called them to, for all those reasons, James wanted to put an end to it. And our passage for this morning, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, is James's attempt to do that, to end the conflict among his people. So with these verses and to those ends, James revealed, you got to get this because it's the whole structure of the sermon. I think this is the structure of our lives in many ways. <laughs> James revealed that both he and his readers had identified a problem, a cause for the problem, and then a solution to the problem. They, so six things, three each. Each one of them had, had identified their own understanding of a problem, the cause of it, and the solution to it. Over the next two weeks, this, this Sunday and next, we're going to consider each of those things. Today in verses 1 through 5, we'll see the problem, its source, and its solution from the perspective of James's readers, as well as the problem and its source from James's perspective. That is to say, from the Holy Spirit's perspective. And then next week, you gotta, you got to come back, because I'm just telling you what's wrong with the world this week. Next week, you get the solution. Next week, those of you who are maybe in conflict, tragically, or who have been through it and are looking for healing, or who are committed to avoiding it, you got to be here next week. So you just get beat up a little this week, and then come, come back. Job security for me. So before I pray, Grace, let's settle on the fact that all of this, all of it, both sides, the wrong stuff James's readers were thinking and doing and the right stuff that James gives to them in response, all of it, all of these things are truly a precious gift from God. We live in a world that is still reeling from and affected by the, the fall. We are all still born into Adam and his spirit wells up inside of us, even as Christians. There's conflict in the world around us and tragically among us. But in all of this, seeing seeing us played out in front of us, the conflict producing lies that James's readers believed, the truth about them and the path to recognizing them and avoiding them and healing from them, all of that is in this and all of that is a gift from God. So let's pray that we'd clearly see all of this, that I'd do a good job of lifting up God's word for you in order that we could learn how to glorify God by living together in peace and unity and when necessary, healing. So let's pray. God, there's a, a lot here as always. And on one hand, it feels like we spend more time than many churches on a passage like this. But on the other hand, every time I feel like there's 10 more sermons to give on this sermon. And so I, I pray, as I did earlier with guys in the prayer room, I, I pray that where I made the right choice and the speed and depth and breadth of the sermon and handling this text, I pray that we'd be helped by your spirit and where I made the wrong choice, that I should have camped out longer or even gone quicker. We pray that we'd be helped by your spirit. Thank you, spirit, that you dwell in us and among us and reveal to us from your your word marvelous things 
It is living and active. And although, God, you have determined to use the preaching and teaching and proclaiming of your word to build your church and your kingdom, you don't need me. You don't need this sermon to do that. So humbly, we submit in obedience and are glad for the work that you'll do with us as conduits. And so may, make, make me this morning a, a, a good conduit for your grace to flow especially your conflict-ending, healing-producing grace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, our, our passage begins with James asking a question. You can see it. If you have your own Bibles, you can see it there. What causes quarrels and fights among you? And the first, the first key for us to see to make sense of this pa- passage is that everything that follows lets us know James wasn't actually wondering the answer to his question. He wasn't asking because he didn't know. In fact, in the same verse that he asks the question, he answers it. And then in the rest, he explains how his readers were answering the question. We'll come back to James's answer in a bit. What I want you to see first is how James's readers saw all of this. James knew both the answer his readers would give and the real one. He's simply introducing the topic. So again, as a means of helping them to end their conflict and walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, James revealed to them their false understanding of their problem, its cause, and its solution. Let's look at all three of those things. How did James's readers understand the nature of their problem? They had one. They knew it. But what was their understanding of the nature of it? Very simply, for them, the problem was that they weren't getting what they wanted. James expressed this in four different ways in verses 2 and 3. You desire and do not have. You covet and do not obtain. You do not have. You ask and do not receive. There's really nothing complicated about this grace church. James's readers had run into the problem in their own estimation of really wanting certain things that they couldn't have. We don't know what those things were. We don't even know, and I'll come back to this, whether they were good things or bad things. We know that there was a sense in which some of them wanted to be teachers within the church, and on the surface, at least, that's a good thing to want. Some of them wanted a kind of wisdom that would be helpful to the church. That's a good thing to want. So we don't even know, we don't know what they wanted, or even if they were good or bad things. All we know is that they wanted them desperately, but couldn't get their hands on them. And we all know how frustrating that can be. You probably don't have to think too hard about something that you experienced along these lines. I I wish that I were a better example or I had a a more vivid example of the good things James is going to say next week in my life. Unfortunately, my most vivid memory is of me being a bad example of what James's readers were doing. Probably... My memory isn't awesome. If you know me, you know that. But this one, this is burned in me. It was either late junior high or early high school. I think it was ninth grade. Uh, there are very few things in life. I remember wanting more than I wanted to go skiing with a friend over Christmas break. It's really difficult to express. And even honestly, if you knew how badly I wanted it, I would be more embarrassed than I am right now. It, it was it was silly. It really was. But I wanted this, and I wanted it really badly. It was all I could think about. I was legitimately willing to trade almost anything to go on this ski trip. Again, that sounds silly to say out loud. It sounded a little silly writing it. it sounds silly or saying it now. 
And I couldn't imagine anything more painful. This is a sheltered life I lived in a lot of ways. I couldn't imagine anything more painful than not getting it. And so as you can imagine, when I found out I couldn't go, it really was crushing. I still remember alternating for, I, I don't know how long, a long time it seemed like anyway, between sadness and anger, anger and sadness, back and forth. The problem, as far as James's readers were concerned, was that they wanted things. They wanted them really badly, evidently, but they could not get them. So what was the cause of this, as far as they understood? Why couldn't they have what they wanted? The answer is only implied in the text, but it is clear. James's readers were somehow keeping one another from getting what they wanted. They couldn't get what they wanted. Why? Because some other, someone else in the church was keeping them from getting it. James noticed conflict among his readers. And he asked them, what's, what's causing all this? What's going on? And their answer was that other people within the church were in the way. Other Christians, as far as they were concerned, were the cause of the conflict. Again, we don't know why or how they were preventing one another, just as we don't know what they actually wanted. We don't know how or why they were preventing one another, only that they were doing so. Back to my sinful self. It would have been one thing if I'd been not been able to go on the ski trip because the weather was too bad or the resort was closed or the car we were going to take broke down. That would have been hard to handle. It still would have been frustrating, but obviously there isn't much you can do about any of those things. The situation was very different, however, in that it was my parents who said no. As far as I was concerned, for no good reason. The problem was that I couldn't go skiing, even though I desperately wanted to. And the cause of the problem, from my point of view, was my, my parents. The problems, problem James's readers believed they faced was not getting what they wanted, and the cause they believed were others within the church. Well, what was the solution then? If that was the problem and the cause, how did they understand the, what was the fix? What were they going to do about this? And their solution, James tells us, was quarreling, fighting, and murdering. You desire, and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight, and you quarrel. Quarreling and fighting probably doesn't need a lot of explanation. It probably means what you think it means. Both come from words most commonly used in the context of combat, military conflict. Quarreling typically referred to ongoing conflict, more like the war as a whole, whereas fighting was generally pointing to a more specific battle within the war. But both basically indicate significant fighting between two opposing sides. To be clear, the quarreling and fighting that James was addressing was not simple, healthy disagreement. He was not even referring to really heated or spirited, but good-natured debates about serious topics. He was talking about adversarial, you-must-lose-so-I-can-win, animus-driven fighting. Well, what James meant by murder is a little trickier to, to explain or to understand. Uh, generally, it's understood that it, he either had his brother Jesus' words in mind in, that in teaching that if you hate someone, it's as if you murdered them, or perhaps he was, what he meant by Murder was simply that if this continues on in the current trajectory unchecked, it's not out of the question. We don't know for sure. But either way, the main point is that things were contentious enough that his readers had murderous thoughts. 
Well, believing my parents to be the cause of my most significant and immediate problem to date, I chose to make their lives as miserable as possible. Kids, this is not an example for you to follow. I'll come back to that later. I chose to make their lives as miserable as possible, as miserable as I believe they were the cause of making mine. What were my weapons of warfare? Guilt, anger, shame, tears, silence, harsh words, and an overall overwhelming obnoxiousness. James's readers saw their problem as not getting what they wanted. The cause is those in their churches, and the solution is fighting with one another to get it. Grace, if you don't know already, this is a tragic scene. James is about to help us to see even further how tragic it is. As I said in the beginning, there are no ways, hear this, there are no ways in which this ought to describe the people of God. As we turn our attention to James's reframing of all of this then, and redefining of each of these things, I want to call you to lean way in. Just lean into this. The rest of the sermon and, and into next week, lean way into what James says. And also, I want to call you to pray earnestly that this may never mark our church. I'd also like to remind you of something else I mentioned at the beginning. This is a gift. It's a gift from God that we see both sides of this. That God would pull back the curtain for us to help us avoid this and put a stop to it where we find it and heal from it if we fall into it. So with that, what's the real problem? What's the real cause? And next week, what's the real solution? So here's what James says. James categorically rejected his reader's understanding of their problem, cause, and solution. Indeed, he was so adamant that he he shifted from calling them brothers and beloved brothers to harsh rebuke. So what's the real problem his readers were facing? The real problem, according to James, was the fighting, the quarreling, and murderous thoughts Among them, that was the problem, is that within the church, there was a kind of disunity that lied about God and and them. Each of those things was exactly contrary to God's calling on their lives and their very nature as brothers and sisters in Christ. They were called to be faithful, but James called them adulterous. They were called to be friends of God, but their actions were more in line, James says, with unbelievers who are enmity with God or as enemies of God. Previously, James had referred to his people again as brothers and beloved brothers, and now he's calling them adulterers, you adulterous people. What a remarkably significant thing. Get this. This is, this is my first really italicized thing, which means it's really important for you to hear. What a remarkably significant thing it is to realize that what James's readers thought of as the solution to the problem was the actual problem. You see that? What they had labeled as the solution, James called the problem itself. How many times, Grace, has that been the case in our lives, perhaps? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There's no indication that James, James's readers had any idea that their fighting was misguided. More than likely, they believed they were fighting for some virtuous and just cause. I deserve to be the teacher. My wisdom is the one that deserves to be heard. Again, let this realization humble you. Wherever you find, a conf- in, wherever you find yourself in a conflict, that you believe yourself to have the upper moral hand in. 
In fact, I hope, in fact, I hope, I hope you hear this. This is italicized and underlined, which means it's really important for you to hear. James is about to help us see that every single time we find ourselves engaged in the kind of quarreling and fighting his readers were engaged in, we are mistaken to believe that the problem is outside of us. Every single time you find yourself in this kind of a conflict, it's a mistake to believe that the problem is outside of you. That's what James is going to help us see next. So again, the problem was not that those in James's churches were not getting what they wanted as they imagined. The problem is, what they were, is that they were fighting with each other to get what they wanted from one another. And they're in acting in ways that were out of keeping with the nature and purpose of God's people. So what was the cause of this then? What was the cause? Define the real cause of their fighting. We go back to the first verse, the beginning of the passage. Before we go there, though, I want to put the question before you. I want you to try to forget we just read this passage or that you've read it in the past. If you, if you had not heard what James says, how would you answer the question? What do you understand to be the cause of conflict within the church or among Christians? We just saw one answer from James's readers, but what would your answer be? Think back of some specific conflict you've experienced. What, what would you say was the answer to that? I imagine some would say something like COVID or racial tensions or the polarizing political climate or some other situational answer. This, this situation arose, and that drove the conflict among us. Others might say some sort of ministry preference surrounding kids program or women's ministry or outreach style or something like that. Still others might name a theological tension surrounding the nature of the word of God or salvation or the roles of men and women or God's sovereignty or something like that. I guess if you pin me down and said, Pastor Dave, if we were to poll this church, where do you think most of the answers would be? My guess is that the bulk of the answers would center around the sins of someone else, much much like James's readers were believing. The leaders are too heavy-handed, or she has such a sharp tongue, or he never does what he says, or they're not bold enough in following Jesus, or no one recognizes my gifts, or something like that. Certainly there has been conflict in the church around each of those categories and in every one of those examples. But James says that none of those are the root issue. The issue isn't whether any of those things are right or wrong. The question is, where does conflict come from? The kind of conflict James is talking about, where does that come from? As real and common as some of those are, they are not the main source of the conflict. So where does that kind of quarreling and fighting come from? It comes, James says, not from situation, a situation, ministry differences, theological technicalities, or the sins of others. It comes ultimately, he says, from, you see it, our own sinful desires. What causes quarrels and what causes fighting among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? As we saw last week, the world, the our flesh and the devils are continually working to draw us away from obedience to God. I'm going to unpack that just a little bit here. This is one of those areas where you should get five sermons, but you get like three paragraphs. 
They are constantly, the world, the flesh, and the devils, our flesh and the devils, they are constantly working to create and stir up selfish passions within us as Christians and cause them to war against us. That is, war against what we know is right, war against our consciences, war against what we want to want by making us want things we don't want. Constantly, that's happening. So simply, as Christians, on this side of heaven, we still have sinful desires that well up and war against our consciences. Now here's, here's, here's the key. Church conflict of the kind James is talking about comes when our sinful passions win out over our godly passions in relation to someone else in the church. All right. Peter addressed the same basic situation. With a command, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. What's implied there is for when you give in to them, it causes conflict among the people of God. Paul described what this was like internally in a remarkable way in Romans 7. He says, I don't understand my own actions. It's where a lot of conflict comes from or begins. I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, but if now if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For if I have, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This is a description of that war that's going on that James is talking about. For I do not do, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do not, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. This is that war. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That's what James is talking about. And when you give in, when the war is successful against you and you give in, that's what he says. That's the the source of conflict in the church, this type of conflict. Simply, conflict among God's people is caused by our own passions. The word translated can also be pleasures, and the word itself is where we get hedonism from. It's the word for hedonistic. And so conflict among God's people, conflicts are caused by our own passions, rising above love for others, love for other Christians every time. What's more, this kind of conflict requires, now get this, because you don't believe this, but I hope you will after this, this kind of conflict requires... both people to participate. It requires both people to allow that to happen within themselves. The, the war of the passions doesn't need to just win with one person. It needs to win with both. If even one of the two allow the gospel to rule, the con- this kind of conflict can't happen. Again, then, wherever you find yourself in the kind of conflict James's readers were in, it is always because your sinful passions are waging war against you and winning. All right, we're going to get practical. In the next several verses, James described three ways that our passions war within us in such a way that they will cause this conflict. Three ways that they can win that will lead to this kind of conflict if they have an equal victory in someone else in the church. 
And by in the church, I don't just mean like when you're in the building. I mean among Christians. So our warring passions, here's three ways. Here's the first one James gives us. Our warring passions cause conflict and they win in us and cause us to want something in a way or more specifically to a degree that we shouldn't. In verse 2, James wrote, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The issue, as I said earlier, is not necessarily what James's readers wanted but weren't getting. Perhaps what they wanted was even good. We talked about that a little bit earlier as well. The issue is that they wanted whatever they wanted badly enough to fight for it. They wanted what they wanted in a way that they shouldn't have, to a degree that they shouldn't have. The old adage is, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. That's what was happening here. Where Christians ought to be willing to be defrauded, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, to be willing to sacrifice whatever good someone else might owe us. James's readers wanted what they wanted so badly that they were willing to sacrifice others to get it and the reputation of Jesus in the process. Think about that, Grace. Think about it. Where in your life do you want something so badly, even perhaps a good thing, even perhaps something God commands of that person? Where do you want something so badly that you are willing to fight verbally, emotionally, perhaps even physically to get it? James calls that adulterous. Second, how how do our passions win in such a way that they lead to conflict? Our warring passions cause conflict when they cause us to seek to have them fulfilled in places or people that cannot do so. I want to say that again because this one is, I think, one of the, I think we need to hear this the most. Our warring passions cause conflict when they cause us to seek to have them, the objects of our passions, fulfilled in places that cannot do so. What does that mean? That's a negative way to word what what James says positively. So let me let me try to explain that. At the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. James's point is that his readers should have asked God for the things that they needed since, as he said back in chapter 1, every good and every perfect gift comes from above. So if it was some good thing that they wanted, they should have been asking God for it, not demanding it from one another. Now let me say that again a little bit differently. By demanding that someone else, the other Christians they were fighting with, by demanding that someone else fulfill their desires, that meant one of two things. This is some tight logic. See if you can grab it. By demanding that someone else fulfill their desires, it either meant that what they desired wasn't good, because that could only come from God, or that that person would not be able to meet it, because God alone can. Think about that for a minute. I know I... I've worked on that a lot, and I still am not convinced I'm saying it as clearly as I ought to. But consider that for a moment, Grace. How many fights have you been in because you demanded something from someone they couldn't give you? This has unbelievable, an unbelievable number of implications. I'm going to give you a handful. Just listen to this. See if you can find yourself in any of these. Kids, how many of you have come to blows with one of your siblings because they had a toy that you wanted and they wouldn't give back to you? Or some version of that. How many times have you yelled at your brother or sister or gotten a fight with your brother or sister because they had a toy or were keeping you from having some kind of fun you decided you deserved? 
Well, the reality is your siblings can't give you genuine satisfaction. Not through a toy, not through a game, not through anything else. God alone can truly satisfy you. You're demanding and fighting over something to get something from your brother or sister. They don't have the power to give. Friends, how many of you have given the cold shoulder to someone because you were hurt that they left you out of something? You have a friend and maybe with some other friends they did something, they didn't invite you, so you kind of Minnesota cold-shouldered them, passive-aggressived them. So maybe it wasn't outright hostile conflict like it seemed to be going on among James's readers. But how many of you did the Minnesota quarrels and fight of just cold shoulder? Your friends cannot provide a true sense of belonging, a true sense of community. You're demanding from some, something from them they cannot give you. So you fight them, even if it's passive aggressively. God alone can do that. Husbands, how many of you have spoken harshly with your wives because she didn't give you the respect you desired? God even commands her to respect you. That's a good thing to want your wife to respect you. But how many of you have spoken harshly with your wives because she didn't give you the respect you you desired? Men, your wives cannot ultimately give you your identity. They can't. God has not made them able to do that. It's not in them to give to you. They can express what God can give to you, but they can't give it to you. God alone can do that. And when you demand it from your wives, you're going to fight them. Wives, how many of you have been hurt and angry because your husband didn't anticipate your obvious needs? Obvious is in scare quotes, ladies. Your husband will never be able to perfectly live with you in an understanding way, even though God has commanded him to. Or have within him what it takes to satisfy you. To demand that from him is to cause conflict in your marriage. Only God can do that. Senior saints, how many of you have been frustrated by the craziness of us with young people or the young people? How many of you have been frustrated because the kids of grace are rowdy enough to disturb your peace? Kids can't give you peace. God alone can. Members, how many of you have become upset because Grace Church doesn't have what you want in the way of specific ministries? Only God can make you holy. Elders, how many times have we been frustrated by this motley crew out here that they're not maturing in Christ fast enough in the ways we need them to to make our lives easier? God alone sets the timing of spiritual growth. We can't demand from you what God alone can give to you. Do you get what I'm saying here, Grace? Conflict comes, James says, one, when we have a type of desire, an amount of desire, or we desire something in a certain way or to a certain degree that we shouldn't. But it also comes when we demand that our desires be satisfied in places that can't do that. Third and finally, our warring warring passions cause conflict when they cause us to want things we shouldn't want to begin with. That's the essence of verse 3. James's readers, he says, you don't have because you don't ask, but even if you did, you wouldn't get it because it's the wrong stuff. James's readers were seeking their desires in wrong places from each other rather than God, and more fundamentally, they desired things that weren't good. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. Spend on your passions. How many fights have been produced, or how many fights have you have you been in because you demanded something that you shouldn't have from the from the beginning? Our passions warring within us cause conflict when they cause us to want things in ways we shouldn't to want things from places that they can't be that can't deliver them 
and to want things we shouldn't want to begin with. And all of this, James wrote, flows out of a particular pathological passion. There's one particular passion that James says wars within us in a specific way to cause all of this. Love for the world. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God's. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I'm going to pick up with that next week as a, as a transition from where we've been to the solution that James gives. What, so what happens when we find all this, when this love for the world driven, these love for the world driven passions well up in us in these ways that James lists to cause conflict among us? What do we do? Or what do we do when it already happened? And we need to find healing. I'm going to come back to this friend of the world four and five as we transition then into six through ten and the solution. But here, here, that world love is at the heart of our heart and almost every conflict within the church. All right, here's my conclusion. This passage describes a problem, a cause, and a solution from the perspective of James's readers. One more time, the problem from their estimation was that they wanted certain things very much but weren't able to get them. The cause, as they understood it, were others within the church who were keeping them from it. And their solution was to fight and quarrel and murder to get it. James wrote that this pa- wrote this passage to shed light on this treachery, to shed light on this ungodliness, and to call them to repent of it. In his rebuke, James framed the problem quite a bit differently, as you heard. Rather than a failure to get what they wanted, James says that the problem was their infighting and the fact that it was contrary to their very nature as the children of God, their calling as the people of God. And the cause of their problem was their own sin of love for the world. Again, next week, we're going to see not only does James James reshape and reframe the problems, but also the solution. Rather than fighting, James says that the solution is repentance flowing from the grace that God alone can give. He's going to tell us what that looks like. What form does your repentance take when you find yourself in the midst of conflict? Or how might you live in order to prevent conflict to begin with? So let's let's take this week, this afternoon through next Sunday, let's take this week to really consider whatever conflict we might be in or have been in, and then remember the cross. Let's remember that Jesus did not call down the legions of angels who stood on call to save him from the devil's temptation, the mockery of the religious leaders, the abuse he took at the hands of the Roman soldiers, or even the cross on which he died. He took the conflict upon himself that we might have peace.